For I am persuaded that neither height nor, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord through confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession of sin is a matter of privacy of your priesthood between you and God the Father, and it's not anybody else's business. When we confess our sins, we are cleansed from our sins, we are restored to fellowship, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and are prepared for the study of God's Word. So we'll have a few minutes of silent prayer, a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll pray and begin. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to gather together under the freedom in this nation as a body of believers to study your word. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross, pray to you, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus also said that it is when we know the truth that the truth will set us free. And the truth here is your word the doctrine that is contained in your word that teaches us how to have a relationship with you and how to live. And you have given us your spirit who indwells and fills us and who is who is our teacher and helps us to understand the things of your word that we might apply them in our lives. And so now, fathers, we come to your word and study it. It's the highest form of worship that we can uh, perform to honor you. We pray that we would understand these things and that God the Holy Spirit would make them a part of our thinking and our life, that we might use them to advance to spiritual maturity and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open the word with me this morning to John chapter 5, and we'll continue our study of the discourse of Jesus on his own deity. The more I study this passage, the more I am impressed with the wealth of doctrine contained here. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you read through the Gospels and you look at these encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees, and you look at how Jesus responds to their attacks and to their antagonism, and when they challenge him about a particular issue, Jesus often has these very quick, almost pithy responses. And yet, when you stop and think about them, they are so filled with doctrine. They are so, he uses such sophisticated arguments, yet they seem so simple. And it just destroys the arguments of his antagonists. Now, the scene here, to remind you of what is going on in John chapter 5, is that Jesus is on the steps of the temple. Earlier that day, when he came into Jerusalem, he went to the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda was known as a place where healing could take place. There was a superstition that had grown up around the pool that when the waters were stirred, that it, the first person in would be healed. And Jesus, without his entourage, just alone, no disciples are with him, very quietly in the midst of all the crowds, goes up to the crippled man who is there by the pool, who's frustrated, been there for 30 years trying to get in to be healed. And Jesus walks up and just leans over to him and says, you want to be healed? And the guy looks at him surprised. Well, I've been lying here all these years, and, and somebody always beats me to it whenever the waters are stirred. And Jesus said, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. The man instantly stood up and walked. And then we get the point. It was a Sabbath day. Jesus chose, intentionally chose this incident to challenge the legalism of the Pharisaical system with his grace and with who he was as the Son of God. And so the man picks up his pallet, he goes to the temple to give thanks, and there he meets Jesus. He has an encounter with the Pharisees. The Pharisees want to know who healed him. He said, I don't know, he left, and then he finds Jesus and he tattles on Jesus. There's no loyalty this, to this man. He's probably not a believer. And he immediately runs to them and says, that's the man, that's the man who healed me on the Sabbath. It's not my fault, it's his fault. He healed me on the Sabbath. And so Jesus begins to give a discourse 
on who He is. And we go back earlier in uh, to John 5.17 where Jesus begins to answer them and Jesus says, My Father is working until now and I myself am working. And we saw that in His use of these words that Jesus is claiming to do the same work as the Father. All through this passage He uses the identical verb for the Father's activity as for His own activity. And He is claiming to be equal with God. And so as we have seen in our study There is no basis for anyone to ever claim that Jesus is not fully divine. And we have studied the doctrine of the hypostatic union. That according to the doctrine of the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity united together forever in the one person of Jesus Christ. Now as we've gone through this passage, I'm impressed by how it contains so many different doctrines and begins to tie them together for us. For example, related to theology proper or the doctrine of God, we learn that Jesus Christ is God and He is the one who most intimately reveals God's character. We learn about man, that Jesus is the perfect man. He is true humanity. And He is the one who will lead man to his destiny and goal and will subdue all nature in the plan of God. We learn about nature, that Jesus Christ rules over nature and controls nature. We learn that Jesus Christ is the one who uh, controls history. We learn about suffering, that no creature has ever suffered as Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. When he hung there on the cross between heaven and earth and all of the sins of the human race were poured out upon him, he suffered so deeply and so intensely that no one of us, no matter how difficult our lives, no matter what suffering we encounter, no matter how Uh, heartbreaking our lives may be, no matter what wrenching things we go through, it will never come to the same level of suffering that our Lord encountered on the cross. And He survived that suffering on the cross by His dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And instead of coming down off the cross and stopping the suffering, He persisted, He endured in the midst of that suffering. And he relied upon the filling of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God to sustain him in the midst of that suffering as an example to us of how we can handle any suffering and heartache and difficulty in our lives. That indeed the Word of God and the power of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit are absolutely sufficient to sustain us through whatever we encounter in life. We've seen the doctrine of judgment salvation that Jesus Christ is the judge and Savior, that God the Father delegated judgment to Him because of His role as the Savior. We've seen the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ did not die as an example for us. He did not die us to show us what a deep conviction He had about His mission and purpose. He died as our substitute in our place. The Greek uses the, the preposition huper, which is a preposition of substitution. And instead of being translated that he died for our sins, we need to give it its full sense. He died as a substitute for us because that's the meaning of the Greek. We have seen the doctrine of justification, that it is his righteousness that is the basis for our justification. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this means... That it, when God the Father looks at us, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when He looks at us, He does not see our own sinfulness and lack of righteousness, but He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and therefore declares us to be justified because we possess Christ's perfect righteousness. We have seen in relationship to the doctrine of faith that Christ perfectly applied the faith rest drill. In relation to the doctrine of revelation that he is the logos of God. He is the source, the content, and the center of all revelation. Only the Son of God is the head or center of revelation. And it is Jesus Christ that is glorified by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit did not come to, is not here to be glorified or to be the focus of worship, but the Father and the Son. Inspiration. We have seen that Jesus Christ is the author of Scripture. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 2, 16, the Scripture is called the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ, so that we can learn it and think like Christ thought, so that we can have the character of Christ formed in us. All of this and much more is contained within this discourse. 
So now we find ourselves in verse 24, where Jesus continues to explain who he is to these antagonistic Pharisees. As he stands on the steps of the temple and he responds to their challenge, a crowd has begun to gather so that not only are the antagonistic, legalistic Pharisees standing there, but also many others who are listening to his words. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, this is a crucial verse to understand, and there are some aspects of it that cannot be understand, understood correctly in the English, but must be understood in, by looking at the Greek as Jesus clarifies his position. Now, he begins with the statement, Amen, Amen, which is translated in the King James, Verily, Verily, or the Greek, Truly, Truly. It is a repetition, and it is really a call to attention. It's, a, it's sort of a verbal way of underlining and bold-facing what you're getting ready to say. Jesus is saying, now pay attention. I'm going to give you a crucial principle here of doctrine, and you need to pay attention. He says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me. Now, it looks at first glance in the English that there are two conditions being set here for salvation, doesn't it? That's why we have to take a little time and go back and look at the Greek of the passage. It begins with the articular prep, uh, participle in the Greek, akuo. looks like this. H-O, this is the definite article, A-K-O-U. Uh, long O N. And this is the one who hears. And the construction, the one who hears, and then there is a connecting conjunction chi, and then a second participle, pistuon. P I S T E U O N. Looks like this in English K A I P I S. This is the word, the verb for faith. Now, notice, you have two participles here. So, we have to stop. This is why it's so important. They, because you have a definite article, it's viewed as an adjectival or substantival uh, participle. That means it functions like a noun, the one who hears. It refers to the person who is listening. And remember, as we have studied in our study of James on Wednesday night, hearing in both Greek and in Hebrew... Hebrew being the original language of the Old Testament, is not just having your eardrums vibrated with sound. Hearing includes and implies a positive response of obedience and application. So Jesus is saying, the one who listens and does my word. So the object of this, first, is the one who hears my word. And the object of the second verb is, believes him who sent me. Now that's a reference to God the Father. The question we must ask is, are we talking about one or two different things? Do you have to believe Jesus' word, i.e. the gospel, believe when Jesus said, believe on me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Do you have to believe in God, the Son, and his substitutionary work on the cross? And do you also have to believe in God the Father? Now, that's what it looks like, doesn't it? But that's not what it says in the Greek. This is why it's so crucial to know the Greek. There was a man who lived in the late 18 or late 1700s by the name of Granville Sharp. Now we don't know much about him in, in uh, America, but Granville Sharp was known as the Abraham Lincoln of England. Granville Sharp was not a trained theologian. He was not a pastor. He was not a clergyman. He was just a regular, everyday believer who was excited about his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Granville Sharp knew that one of the biggest issues in his day was an attack on the deity of Jesus Christ. That people were attacking who Jesus was because if Jesus was not God, then there is no salvation and there is no hope for the human race. So Granville Sharp wanted to be able to prove to those he witnessed to that Jesus was indeed God. So Granville Sharp taught himself Greek and Hebrew. 
to such an extent. Now, this is the way people, Christians used to be. Christians used to realize that, that they had to know the original languages. In fact, in this country, uh, in this part of the world, in the 1600s and 1700s, every school child studied Greek and Latin and Hebrew and had more knowledge of those languages by the time they were 13 and 14 years old because our Puritan forefathers understood that the most important thing in life was to be able to understand the Word of God. And so they taught their children the original languages and they taught them their whole philosophy of education was motivated by their understanding of of our relationship with God and the importance of knowing God's Word. So that, and I've read the figures, in, in 1690, the lowest... Uh, uh, rate of reading in any part of Massachusetts or Connecticut was about 96%. 96% of the population could read and write. Don't have that today. What motivated it was the importance they placed on the Word of God. Now, Granville Sharp and a man named William Wilberforce were evangelical believers, and because of their belief in Scripture and in man's value as man, they were motivated to end slavery in England. And they worked within the system for years, and they were, were responsible for ending slavery and abolishing slavery in the uh, British Empire by the early 1800s. Now, what's interesting is, to con- I always take time to do this because Americans are so... Uh, ignorant about the causes and consequences of what we call down in Texas the War of Northern Aggression. (laughs) See, most school kids are taught that the causes for the American War between the states, it was not really a civil war, or as it was called up here, the the, the War of Rebellion, that the causes had little, if anything, to do with slavery. Now, that was a a surface cause. The real issue was states' rights. It was not slavery. Lincoln didn't even free the slaves until 1863, and when he finally got up the nerve to do it, he only freed the slaves in the rebellious states. He didn't free the slaves in in any other states, just the ones in the rebellious states. If you go back and you study history, you realize there were two big movements in the north, all over the country, really, but primarily in the north. You had a movement from the, what we would call the liberals, the transcendentalists, Thoreau and Emerson and, and that crowd. They were secularists. They were not believers. And they believed that society was perfectible in a secular sense. They were utopians. So they wanted to perfect society, and that meant you had to get rid of the big social evils of the day, which was slavery and then temperance and then child labor and a few other things, but in that order. Then there were the so-called evangelicals of the North. These were influenced by a post-millennial theology of specifically a man named Charles Grandison Finney and also the Beechers. Lyman Beecher was a very famous preacher in Massachusetts and his father as well as his sister Harriet Beecher Stowe. And they believed, number one, that man was not inherently a sinner. So that doesn't make them in agreement with us. Man was not inherently a sinner. Christ did not die as a substitute for sins and that it was up to the church to bring in the millennium. So society was perfectible just as man, because he's not inherently a sinner, is perfectible. So we're going to go out and it's up to us, is their mentality, to perfect American society. Well, that's crusader arrogance. And the way it manifested itself was that the abolitionists carried it to an extreme. When the abolitionists operating on crusader arrogance went all the way over to this extreme, and then the hotheads, the hotspurs they called it down in South Carolina, reacted. See, arrogance always foments reaction. So society polarized between the abolitionists in the north and the hotheads, the hotspurs in the south. And the result was we had a cataclysm that to this day has not been fully resolved. The difference wasn't that the viewing that slavery was something that was wrong and should be removed from society. It was that arrogance was the motivation and determined the methodology. Contrasted with England, 
where there was no arrogance, there was humility exemplified in true biblical understanding of man and society and the atonement on the part of Granville Sharp and William Wilberforce. There was no division, there was no polarization, and there was a peaceful resolution of the problem. You see, I tell that to people because most of us in our society today think that somehow theology and doctrine are out here and they don't really have anything to do with where we live in terms of life and politics and economics. And that's one of the greatest illustrations to show that what you believe about theology, if it's wrong, it's going to destroy society. And that's what happened. Well, Granville Sharp came up with a rule, a very famous rule in Greek, and that is that when you have a definite article and then a noun or a noun substantive and then a conjunction and then another noun or substantive or participle, that these two nouns are identical and refer to the same person. Now, that's important. That demonstrates the deity of Christ in a number of crucial passages. But our subject here, although it's the deity of Christ, the statement that Jesus is making is that, I say to you, he who hears my word, in other words, the person who responds positively to the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not believe and be baptized. It's not believe and go to church. It's not believe and give money to the church. It's none of those things because Christ and Christ alone paid the penalty for our sins and we can't add anything to that. He did all the work and we simply accept it as a free gift. Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. These are the same people. It's identical. If you hear the gospel and believe it, Jesus is saying, if you hear the gospel and believe it, respond positive, you are also believing my Father. They're the one and the same thing. The very act of your hearing and accepting me, I am so tightly united with the Father that to hear me and to believe me is to believe the Father. They're viewed as identical things. So the Greek grammar here is so crucial that God the Holy Spirit in the act of of breathing out God's Word through John the Apostle, articulates it in a very precise manner. Now, there's an application to this that I haven't stressed lately, and so I want to come back and stress it. When you read the Scripture, you see that God is is precise. He doesn't speak in generalities. There's an emphasis on quality. There's an emphasis on doing things in a very precise manner. We live in an age when people want to reduce the Scripture sometimes to generalities, to little truisms and sayings that aren't precise. But we say, oh, that's okay, people understand it. We have to be precise. If God's this precise, then we too should be precise. And there's another application of that. Too often I think that when we do things as a believer, as a believer we slip into mediocrity in our lives. Well, God does not like mediocre Christians. Revelation chapter 3, God says, because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now, I know it's a little early in the morning and some of you are very sensitive to things, but what we're talking about here is, is a very graphic image that God wants us to understand. That If you're a mediocre Christian, I think the term is projectile vomiting. I think that communicates it graphically. That's how God feels about you. You're still his child and he still loves you. But you make him nauseous because you're mediocre. You are not on fire for the gospel and for learning doctrine and for your own spiritual life. Not somebody else's. The issue is your own positive volition towards the gospel and towards growing to spiritual maturity. And the issue is, although this word has a little bit of a negative connotation, the issue is, are you a fan in the sense of a, like a football fan is a fanatic for football? Are you a, a fan, a fanatic about your spiritual life? Not about trying to convert somebody else. Not about making sure other people understand the word. But about your own spiritual life. Have you made your spiritual life and your relationship to God the highest priority in your life? And that's what the Bible is talking about. It doesn't start or end with salvation. Once you trust Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you are born again. 
you are regenerated. You are given new life. But you are a baby. And the goal of God's plan for your life is not to leave you in diapers, but to advance you to spiritual maturity. And that's not mediocrity. See, most Christians just want to be lukewarm. I'll go to church Sunday morning once a week, the nod to God crowd, and I'll do my bit for God, and, and then I'll go on and live my life the rest of the week. But God says that the goal is that you have to have your thinking completely renovated by the thinking that is in the Bible. And that doesn't happen very easily. We have to devote ourselves to having our thinking renovated. I think another application for this is for us as a body of believers. And that is that we need not accept mediocrity. Now, it's always hard for a small church to take care of certain things because our resources are somewhat limited. But we need to think about this old meeting house. And we need to do some things here. We really do. We need to sharpen up our appearance. We need to sharpen it up just in terms of its safety. And we need to look at what we, how we present ourselves as a body of believers in the sense of excellence. We should stand for excellence. This congregation, if we believe what we say we believe, we should have a passion for excellence and quality in everything we do. But that needs to be tempered because we have our honest limitations. We all know we're a somewhat musically challenged congregation. <laughs> But we do the best we can, and we need to continue to pursue excellence and to do it the best we can. But we're not going to sound like some churches that have uh, uh, 300 people and a, and a beautiful organ and all of these other things. But whatever it is that we have, we need to pursue it to the best of our ability and what God has provided for us. We have a visible representation, not only as, as individuals in the community, but also as a church in this community. And so we need to really take a stand and look around. I mean, it's easy to get used to sometimes you see things sitting over here like a, like a cup of coffee here or a piece of paper over here. It's been there for 20 years. And we get used to it. We need to kind of get a fresh look when we look around the building and say, you know, we need to sharpen up our, our appearance a little bit because we are a visible representation of truth and we need to have a passion. If we're going to have a passion for excellence in our spiritual life, it has its, it has its effect in every area. The Scripture doesn't say live your spiritual life on Sunday morning to the glory of God. It says do all things whatsoever you do to the glory of God. Now those are just the implications from the precision of the Scriptures. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, they're the same thing, that you have eternal life. This is a present possession. You have eternal life. It's a present active indicative in the Greek, the present tense indicating continuous action. Eternal life becomes your personal possession at the moment of salvation. It happens at an instant in time, a nanosecond. You say, I believe Jesus Christ died as my Savior, and at that instant, you have as your possession forever and ever eternal life. So let's translate this, expand the translation a little bit to understand what the, the nuances of it in, from the Greek. Truly, truly, in other words, pay attention. I'm telling you something important. The person who positively responds to my message of the gospel is at the same time believing with respect to the Father. Now that's another thing I didn't go into in the Greek, but normally in, in John's Gospel, and we've studied this, and the word belief is so crucial, you have the phrase pistuo, ace. Ace is a preposition, E-I-S, and it means to believe in the direction of something, to believe that, to believe in. And John uses this over and over and over again with reference to the gospel. It's not what we have in this verse. In this verse, you just have the verb, pistuo, and then God is in the dative case. And that means that is a dative of respect or reference. So he's not talking about salvation here, believing in God, in the same sense that he said, believe in Jesus. He uses a different phraseology in the Greek. He is saying believing with reference to God. 
So the person who positively responds to my message of the gospel is at the same time believing with respect to the Father who sent me. This person has as a result the present possession of eternal life. And he has moved. He has he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You have moved from the category of death. We are born in the realm of Satan, who is the prince and power of this world. This is also called the kingdom of darkness. And at the moment of faith alone, in Christ alone, we move into the realm of life. We are given spiritual life. We are in the kingdom of God. And we are in the kingdom of light. But the scripture says, by the mandates that we are to walk as sons of light, that we can still live like we're over here. The process of the spiritual life is learning the Word of God under the filling of the Spirit of God so that we can advance to spiritual maturity and fulfill the mandate to live like sons of light. But don't confuse spiritual life doctrine with justification doctrine. See, we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. It happens at a moment in time and we are transferred from this realm to this realm. But the spiritual life is the process of learning how to live now that we're positionally in this realm as sons of God, members of the royal family in light of our royal priesthood. The person who believes the gospel does not come unto judgment. Why? At the cross, Jesus Christ... Now, this is something that many of you are still grappling with. At the cross, God the Father poured out all the sins of humanity on Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. Remember, God is omniscient. That means God knows all the knowable. God knows all the knowable simultaneously. God is also eternal. So God has eternally known all the knowable simultaneously. Which means that there isn't anything that you're going to do in this life that God hasn't been aware of from eternity past. That means that you may shock yourself tomorrow by some sin that you commit. But it doesn't surprise God. God's known about that sin for billions and billions of eons. And God said in His plan in eternity past that I'm going to have a perfect plan that's going to take care of every problem in the human race and there's no sin too great for the grace of God. So Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. Man was on one side, God on the other, and in between the sin barrier. But the sin barrier is removed. Sin's not the issue anymore. Now, any evangelist you listen to, or many evangelists that you listen to, will say, now, what are you going to do when you show up in heaven and God starts reading off all those sins? Everybody's going to know about it. What they're doing is opting for legalism and guilt. Guilt is always the motivation of legalism. Jesus Christ paid the penalty. He said it is finished. That means sin is no longer the issue. God the Father's not going to bring it up again but you still have a problem. As an unbeliever, you are minus R. You lack righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What God needs in order to justify us, remember the term justification, comes from the Greek word dikaiosune, which is the same word for righteousness. In order for the righteousness of God to justify us, we have to have perfect righteousness. And what's going to happen at the great white throne judgment is not that sins are going to be read out, but you're going to have somebody like Dilbert show up. And God's going to say, okay, Dilbert, you did a lot of things in your life, and you've got 5,379 really good deeds. But when you add them all up, they're filthy rags. What I need is absolute plus R. So you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire because you're condemned, not by your sins, but by your lack of righteousness. Because Christ paid the penalty for sin already. 
And in Revelation chapter 20, it says that they are judged not for their sins, but for their deeds, for their works. And all those works do not add up because there's no justification. There's no righteousness. So sin is not the issue. Now the believer, because at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone is imputed the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that now because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, God the Father declares us to be righteous, to be just. So therefore we will not come into judgment. We have passed from death unto life. Jesus then shifts the topic in verse 25. Again, he says, pay attention. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, an hour is coming. Now, this is the third of four times in John that he uses this phrase, an hour is coming. We saw it twice back in John 4 when he was talking to the woman at the well. Notice how far we've come. That was easy when we were going through the woman at the well, wasn't it? And Nicodemus. We hit John 5 and Jesus starts talking about his deity and our brains are going inside out because this is hard, hard stuff. So I want to make sure we all understand this. It's crucial to our spiritual life. An hour is coming and now is. In John 4, 21 and 23, Jesus used the phrase talking about the new shift of dispensation. You see... The fact that he's saying an hour is coming and now is indicating that God's changing things in the way he operates or administers human history. It's a dispensational shift. That word dispensation translates the Greek word oikonomos. O-I-K-O-N-O-M-O-S which oikos is the word for house, namos for law and came to mean how a household was administered by the head of the house. And God administered the house of human history through the Mosaic Law during the age of Israel. But He is shifting the way He is administering things after Christ came. Grace is true, both both eras. In the Old Testament, they were saved by faith alone, anticipating the promised Messiah. In the New Testament, we're saved by faith alone, by the completed work of Christ the Messiah. Jesus says there's a dispensational shift here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead, that is the spiritual dead, remember there's about five different kinds of dead people in the Bible. There's physically dead, spiritually dead, sexually dead, carnally dead, and eternally dead. For just as um, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, this is the spiritually dead. They hear the gospel. When they hear the gospel... The unbeliever is spiritually brain dead. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that uh, the, the natural man, that is the uh, sukikos man in the Greek, which is sukos, meaning soul, that the soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned, that is, through a, the uh, human spirit. The human spirit is what we receive at regeneration when we are spiritually born again. That's what that means. We receive a human spirit which gives us the ability to understand the things of God and have a relationship with God. But the unbeliever, here's the gospel, but the unbeliever is spiritually brain dead. He can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. So what has to happen? The Holy Spirit in His ministry of convicting makes the gospel clear and understandable to the thinking of the unbeliever. And then the unbeliever has to exercise his volition either positively by saying, I believe the gospel, or negatively by rejecting the gospel. And Jesus is saying, the hour now is when the dead, the spiritually dead, shall hear the voice of the Son of God because he is physically present. And he uses the phrase Son of God because here he's emphasizing his deity. And we studied the term Son of God as, as an indication of his deity. They shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear and believe, because that's the concept of hearing means to respond positively, those who hear shall live. They're going to have eternal life. Jesus said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. And then he goes on to explain this concept of life in verse 26. He says, For just as the Father has life in Himself, Even so, He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. So what we're saying is in the plan of God, you have God the Father 
delegating to God the Son life. So that God the Son, because He is the Savior, is the one who is going to bestow life, this is eternal life, on believers. Now remember, the definition of the deity of Christ is that God, that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity. He possesses all of the attributes of God the Father. He is co-eternal, co-infinite, and co-substantial. Here to remind you is the essence of God. God is sovereign, righteous, just, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, and veracity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all share equally in all of these attributes. They are each fully God. Jesus Christ is not only fully God, but by virtue of the Incarnation, He became true humanity. God the Father in the plan of salvation delegated to God the Son life and also authority to execute judgment. Now, why does God the Son have the authority to execute judgment? Because He is the one who went to the cross and He died there as our substitute. He died spiritually. He was separated from God the Father. The essence of of sin, spiritual death. Adam was in the garden and his wife, Isha, for that was her name before the fall, after the fall it changed to Eve. God said, here's a tree. I've provided everything for you, including a test. There's fruit hanging on the tree. You can eat any fruit you want to in the whole garden, but the moment you eat that fruit, you'll die. He didn't die physically for 900 plus years. But they instantly were separated from God so that when God came later that day to walk in the garden with them as He did every day, they ran and hid because they could no longer have a relationship with God. So the essence of sin is spiritual death. And all other forms of death flow from spiritual death. Physical death, carnal death, sexual death, every other kind of death flows from the fact that man became spiritually dead. Well, Christ had to pay the penalty for spiritual death on the cross. And that was when he was separated from God the Father for those three hours and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those who reject the gospel reject his payment. They say, Your judgment wasn't good enough. I want to do it myself. And so God delegates to Jesus because of what he went through on the cross the authority to execute judgment. Why? Because notice the title shift. He's the Son of Man. The verse before he was the Son of God emphasizing his deity, but here it's emphasizing his humanity because it was in his humanity that he paid the penalty for the human race. And then in verse 28, Jesus says, Now wake up. Don't marvel at this. Don't be so astounded. You guys are supposed to be the experts in the Scripture here. It says an hour is coming, but he doesn't say and now is. Now he shifts to prophecy. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. These are the dead. First Thessalonians 4 says, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. Not on the earth, but in the clouds. You see, the next time there is anything in the prophetic calendar is at what is called the rapture of the church. Now, the word rapture comes from a Latin word, uh, rapto, which means to caught, be caught up. And that's the word that's used in the Latin Vulgate as a translation of the word to be caught up together with him in the clouds that's found in the Greek. So even though the word rapture is not used in the English Bible, it still has its source in biblical terminology. But even if it didn't, that's okay. We use all kinds of words and terminologies like trinity and hypostatic union and all kinds of different words that are not necessarily used in the Scriptures to explain the doctrines Therein, Christ comes in the clouds. Every believer in the church age is caught up into heaven with Him. And it is after that that there is a seven-year period of tribulation when Satan throws his big temper tantrum on planet earth. And that doesn't begin with the rapture. That begins with the treaty that the Antichrist signs with the uh, nation Israel. And that begins a seven-year tribulation. Jesus is talking about the rapture. He says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear His voice and shall come forth. Now, He's talking very generally here. 
And then he says, those who did the good, and this is the Greek word agathos, A-G-A-T-H-O-S, which means good of intrinsic value. You know what intrinsic value is? It's the value of gold or silver or diamonds. Something that has intrinsic value always has it. Whether you find gold in an earring or in a tooth, or you find gold dust scattered at the bottom of a river, it has the same value. It always has the same value. Jesus is saying you have to do the good. But see, man does not do good on his own. He cannot do good of intrinsic value. This is only the result of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ did the good on the cross, and by virtue of our faith alone in Him, that is applied to us. That's the doctrine of imputation of righteousness. So Jesus is talking about those who did the good that have perfect righteousness because of faith alone in will go to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil, and there's a different term here, those who did the good deeds is poieo in the Greek, which means to do something, but committed the evil deeds is the Greek word proso, which means to practice. And he's talking to the Pharisees because they've committed their lives to a life of practicing righteousness so that they can get into heaven. And yet Jesus said, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not because there was something evil about them, but because in terms of all of human history, probably no group of people have ever been more moral and upright than the Pharisees. And Jesus said, this is the best man can do, and you've got to be better than this to get into heaven. You've got to have perfect righteousness. So he tells them, those who committed the evil, that is, who practiced evil, who practiced sin, to a resurrection of judgment. That's the great white throne judgment. Now, there are two resurrections. I know this confuses some of you, so we'll summarize it very briefly. Two resurrections in Scripture. The first one has four stages. Stage one, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, is the first fruits, which is Jesus Christ, and He rose from the dead three days after the crucifixion. The second phase is the rapture of the church. The third phase is all tribulation martyrs. And the fourth phase are any believers who die during the millennium. Now, that's going to be very rare unless they commit a crime because capital punishment will be uh, practiced again in the millennium as it should be now because that's what the Old Testament says and that's what the New Testament says in Romans 13 is that capital punishment is not vengeance. It is like removing cancer. It is the exact punishment needed in order to vindicate the victims of crime. That's the purpose for capital punishment. Now, some, just because some people use it vindictively, some people want revenge, that means they don't understand it either. The purpose of capital punishment is to remove people who have so degenerated in their thinking that they are no longer going to be a profitable element to society and they need to be removed in order to protect the innocent. And see, today we're more concerned about the criminal than we are the victim. So we want to coddle the criminal and we want to support him with all of our tax dollars. So if you want to have a free ride for the rest of your life, go kill somebody and then the government will take care of you to the tune of forty to $50,000 a year for the rest of your life. It's a free ride. How distorted we've become, and we, we, we call it being good and kind, and yet we ignore the victims of these horrible crimes. Four parts to the resurrection, the first resurrection, and these are those who are resurrected to eternal life, and then there is the second resurrection, which are all unbelievers, and they are resurrected to the judgment seat of Christ where they are judged for their works which don't add up to perfect righteousness and then they are condemned to the lake of fire. The issue though is belief. Jesus summarized it so succinctly in John 3.18. He who has the Son, he who believes in the Son is not condemned. Think about that. All he says, he who believes is not condemned. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not condemned. But he who believes not 
is condemned already. Why? Not because of his sin, but because he didn't believe. He who believes not is condemned already. The issue is faith alone, not works. Faith alone in Christ alone. Well, that summarizes the main gist, the main part of Jesus' discourse here. And then, in verse 30, he summarizes it all in terms of his equality to the Father, reiterates the opening point from verse 19. I can do nothing on my own initiative. In other words, I'm not here acting independently of the Father. I'm carrying out the Father's will. He has a plan of salvation which we agreed upon in eternity past at the Council of Divine Decrees. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, that is from the Father, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. God the Son was not operating independent of God the Father. God the Son became man. He still maintained and still possessed all of His divine attributes. He willingly, voluntarily limited the independent use of those attributes during the Incarnation. But He still used them within the plan of God. He turned the water into wine to show that He was God and omnipotent. He healed from His deity to show that He had the power over illness and sickness. He did other things by means of God the Holy Spirit. And he, in His humanity, He lived the spiritual life in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit as an example for us, you see, our precedence is the Christ, not the Old Testament. That's one of the big confusions. Precedent for the spiritual life today is in how Christ lived, not how Old Testament Jews lived under the Mosaic Law. So the issue is grace, the issue is faith alone in Christ alone, and the issue is dependence upon God's provision through the Spirit of God and the Word of God for growing to spiritual maturity with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You so much for Your grace that we did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to deserve it. That You, from Your love, provided everything for us. We pray now that if there is anyone here without hope, without eternal life, without assurance of their salvation, that right now, if there's anyone here that has never put their faith alone in Christ alone, that they would take this opportunity to do so. In the privacy of their soul, in a prayer directed to God the Father alone, forming words in thought alone, all you need to say is, Father, I accept the free gift of Jesus Christ's salvation. I believe He died on the cross as my substitute. That's all that's needed. And at that instant that you do that, the instant of your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life that can never be taken away. Father, we thank You for the things that we have learned, for the encouragement as we have understood more about our Lord and Savior who died for us, that this might strengthen our spiritual life and motivate us to advance towards spiritual maturity. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.